Welcome to the Upper Perkiomen Community Church Podcast. Join us on Sundays at 258 Main Street, East Greenville, Pennsylvania. Refreshments at 9 a.m. Worship gathering at 9.30 a.m. Or visit us online at upcconline.org. Please sit back and enjoy our teaching time now with Lead Pastor John Buckley. Now Samuel died, and all Israel gathered for his funeral. They buried him at his house in Ramah. Then David moved down to the wilderness of Maon. There was a wealthy man from Maon who owned property near the town of Carmel. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and it was sheep shearing time. This man's name was Nabal, and his wife Abigail was a sensible and beautiful woman. But Nabal, a descendant of Caleb, was crude and mean in all his dealings. When David heard that Nabal was shearing his sheep, he sent ten of his young men to Carmel with this message for Nabal. Peace and prosperity to you, your family, and everything you own. I am told that it is sheep shearing time. While your shepherds stayed among us near Carmel, we never, hurt, we never harmed you, and nothing was ever stolen from them. Ask your own men, and they will tell you this is true. So would you be kind to us, since we have come at a time of celebration? Please share any provisions you might have on hand with us, in, with your friend David. David's young men gave this message to Nabal in David's name, and they waited for a reply. Who is this fellow David? Who does the son of Jesse think he is? There are lots of servants these days who run away from their masters. Should I take, bread to, should I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to a band of outlaws who come from who, who knows where? So David's young men returned and told him what Nabal had said. Get your swords, was David's reply as he strapped on his own. Then 400 men started off with David, and 200 remained behind to guard their equipment. Meanwhile, one of Nabal's servants went to Abigail and told her. David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, but he screamed insults at them. These men have been very good to us, and we never suffered any harm from them. Nothing was stolen from us the whole time they were with us. In fact, day and night, they were like a wall of protection to us and, she- and the sheep. You need to know this, this and figure out what to do, for there is going to be trouble for our master and his whole family. He's so ill-tempered that no one can even talk to him. Abigail wasted no time. She quickly gathered 200 loaves of bread, two wineskins full of wine, five sheep that had been slaughtered, nearly a bushel of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 fig cakes. She packed them on donkeys and said to her servants, Go on ahead. I will follow you shortly. But she didn't tell her husband Nabal what she was doing. As she was riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, she saw David and his men coming toward her. David had just been saying... A lot of good it did to help this fellow. We protected his flocks in the wilderness, and nothing he owned was lost or stolen. But he has repaid me evil for good. May God strike me and kill me if even one man of his household is still alive tomorrow morning. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed low before him. She fell at his feet and said, I accept all blame in this matter, my lord. Please listen to what I have to say. I know Nabal is a wicked and ill-tempered man. Please don't pay any attention to him. 
He is a fool, just like his name suggests, but I never even saw the young man you sent. Now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself lived, since the Lord has kept you from murdering and taking vengeance into your own hands, let all your enemies and those who try to harm you be as cursed as Nabal is. And here is a present that I, your servant, have brought to you and your young men. Please forgive me if I have offended you in any way. The Lord will surely repay, reward you with a lasting dynasty, for you are fighting the Lord's battles. And you have not done wrong throughout your entire life. Even when you are chased by those who seek to kill you, your life is safe in the care of the Lord, your God, secure in his treasure pouch. But the lives of your enemies will disappear like stones shot from a sling. When the Lord has done all he promised and he has made you leader of Israel, don't let this be a blemish on your record. Then your conscience won't have to bear the staggering burden of needless bloodshed and vengeance. And when the Lord has done these great things for you, please remember me, your servant. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to meet me today. Thank God for your good sense. Bless you for keeping me from murder and from carrying out vengeance with my own hands. For I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, who has kept me from hurting you, that if you had not hurried out to meet me, not one of Nabal's men would be still alive tomorrow morning. Then David accepted her present and told her, Return home in peace. I have heard what you said. We will not kill your husband. When Abigail arrived home, she found that Nabal was throwing a big party and was celebrating like a king. He was very drunk, so she didn't tell him anything about her meeting with David until dawn the next day. In the morning when Nabal was sober, his wife told him what had happened. As a result, he had a stroke, and he lay paralyzed on his bed like a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck him, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Praise the Lord who has avenged the insult I received from Nabal and has kept me from doing it myself. Nabal has received the punishment for his sin. Then David sent messengers to Abigail to ask her to become his wife. When the messengers arrived at Carmel, they told Abigail, David has sent us to take you back to marry him. I, your servant, would be happy to marry David. I would even be willing to become a slave, washing the, seat, the feet of his servants. Quickly getting ready, she took along five of her servant girls as attendants, mounted her donkey, and went with David's messengers. And so she became his wife. David also married Ahinoam from Jezreel, making both of them his wives. Saul, meanwhile, had given his daughter Michael, David's wife, to a man from Galam named Palti, son of Laish. Easton Hallmans for reading that. Figured it'd be a lot more interesting to hear all those voices than just me read the whole section. And you get to see the flavor of the individuals involved. So today's message I've entitled, Where Three Lives Collide, from 1 Samuel 25. You can also grab one of the Bibles if you want to follow along on page 315. You've heard the story, and so what I want to do is unpack the characters in the story with you today. I want to share with you that it's interesting how this whole passage lays out. Last week, Brian preached, and he shared with us really what I kind of almost figure as this whole Tom and Jerry situation. You know, you got chasing around the mountain, chasing here and there, and Saul pursuing David. And that's the chapters that sandwich in this section. In the very beginning of this passage, it says Samuel dies. Now, although it doesn't say a lot about Samuel dying, there's a lot that's involved in all that's taking place and kind of the pinnacle of what this is, was, is dealing with. See, this chapter has immense significance if it only tells us about Samuel's death. You've you got to realize if we're watching the passages and if you haven't been with us, We've seen Samuel basically, is, I'm sorry, Saul has basically been losing his mind. David's been running for his life. And in the midst of all that, Samuel has been that consistent, 
godly influence on the nation of Israel. He's been there to help guide. He's been a prophet among prophets. And what he's done, he will become the last prophet in the line of prophets in Israel. There's a lot of things that have taken place there. And when you evaluate and look at this kind of significance, it makes you wonder, why did God just decide to put this one almost fairy taleish type story with the villain and the good guys and the plot twist, and yet God put it here for us to learn from, and I really believe that what he's showing with, with us here today is these three different lives that we're going to see predominantly, and some very practical lessons that in the craziness of all the land of Israel, coming down to the fact of realizing that we make choices that have long-lasting effects on the lives that we, are, that we, that we live and the, the plans that we make. And so as we look at these individuals, I hope we can glean a lot from the different ones. And so what I'm going to do, since we've read the whole passage, I'll be referring to sections in there, but I want to take us character by character and help us to understand who these individuals really were. Now, the first guy I want to talk to you about today is the guy I call the foolish rich man. The foolish rich man, or Nabal. And Nabal is scattered throughout passage there, verses 2 and 3, verses 9 to 11, and verses 37 and 38. Now, Nabal, his name meant fool. Now, I don't know about you, but when I thought about my children's name, I'll have to admit I didn't go through the books and find out the definitions, but it seems very interesting that Nabal's name also meant fool, and that you see the life that he lived, and I don't know all the the ramifications, I don't know all the reasons behind it, but it's very interesting that that's that's what his name meant. And when you read there in the first part, you find out he was known for being harsh and badly behaved. Now, if I were to ask each of you to take a piece of paper and write adjectives about what you'd want to be known as, I'm pretty sure harsh and not well-behaved would not be at the top of your list. I'm sure that when I say harsh and not well-behaved, some of you have people that come to mind, actually, when you think about that. Please don't look around the room and make make eye-can't contact. Harsh. The concept of harsh is gruff, rough-edged. Um, they're the kind of people when you talk to, you want to prepare yourself because you're not quite sure how they're going to handle you sharing with them whatever it is. We usually think worst case scenario with harsh people. When I tell them this, they're going to try to rip my head off. That's what we think harsh. Now, when we think not well behaved, I think of that more something with a child. You know, when your child's not well behaved. When they want to go in the store and they want to grab everything off the shelf. When they want to poke their brothers and sisters. When they want to, and you like, well, you stop that. You need to behave yourself. They especially like to do that when you're trying to present yourself well. You go into a room and you want your children to be the ones everybody goes, oh, look at the cute little kids, not the ones tearing around, knocking things down, and people going, never invite that family over again. Again, please don't look around and make eye contact. So those are two terms that we not want to have associated with our name. Now, interestingly, he was also a Calebite. Now, who, what is a Calebite? And this is a very striking situation because a Calebite was one of the men that we probably remember if you go back a little farther. And you know that there was two guys that were spies who went into the land of Israel and came back and gave a good report saying, hey, God's going to give us this land. Yeah, they got giants, but they also have these huge vineyards. And they have this, it's a rich land. It's like flowing with milk and honey. It's got all these things. It's awesome. God's prepared this amazing land for us. Now let's go get it and for promise. And the other 10 guys are like, no, whoa, no, wait a minute. Just calm down a little bit. You kind of minimize the whole big giants thing. Can God really take care of the big giants? 
And Caleb and Joshua persisted in that even though the Israelites chose to listen to the 10. And God made Caleb a promise that he would keep him strong in his old age and he would give him a section of territory that would be his and his families to come. Nabal does not represent well his great-grandfather, Caleb, does he? Not characteristically at all. Caleb was a man of God. Caleb was a man who had trust in God. Caleb was known for his persistence in fighting the battles of God. And Caleb was actually in the area of Judah where, where Caleb's piece of uh, property was, the Calebites. He was actually a kinsman or related to David. So he was a Calebite. But we also find that he rejected David's request. Now, when we read that, don't ever get in your mind that, again, what I just said, kinsman, Nabal knew who David was. Absolutely. He was doing this, and in fact, it's very interesting when you see how self-centered David is, excuse me, Nabal is. He mentions in one verse, verse 11, his own name eight times. I'm sorry, not his name. I or my eight times. My wealth, my vineyards, my this, I, I, my. And you just see the self-centeredness of it all and the derogatory comments, the way he maliciously treats David. He knows what, what's going on. News had gotten out. He was just not on, on, on top of not being generous and kind. He was just being downright torturously mean to this man, David. Now, I know, but probably when you read the passage, you might have said, well, wait a minute. David sends his servants there, and it kind of looks to me like extortion. I mean, hey, we haven't stolen anything. We were able to watch out for your guys. They didn't miss anything. You owe us something as if they were the mob, you know, of those days going, hey, now pay up. But it was very customary in those days that when the shepherds would be out, that there were certain uh, tribes or, or, or groups of people that as they would go around, they would not only kind of carry out their business, but they oftentimes would work on arrangements where, hey, you know, we'll kind of take care of each other. You give us a little of this, we'll give you that. We'll kind of cooperate with each other. And you notice when the servants went back to Abigail, what did they say? He was like a wall to us. He protected us. He had our back. And you're right, we didn't miss one thing. They didn't take anything. They didn't do anything to harm us. They were like a wall between us and others that might have wanted our harm. So when he was asked this, Nabal, he just rejected David's request. Again, you see that harshness coming in there, that unwillingness to be able to be bendable or pliable at all, and even not just saying no, but saying it in such a mean, nasty way to inflict pain on David as a person. But you see at the end, at the end of his big party, because the sheep shearing usually took place twice a year. We're not sure which season this was, but twice a year. He had it and he threw this big party feasting like a king. Probably the food that his wife took was part of the food that was prepared for the feast, which just so shows you the vast amount of the food that was prepared that nobody even noticed that this portion was gone. And then in the morning time after the feast, after Abigail chose in his drunken stupor not to tell him what happened, the next morning, as soon as he heard the news, the ESV says he has a stroke, other versions say other, but in essence, he went into a coma of sorts. Now, why did God not just strike him dead? No idea. But for 10 days, maybe it was for 10 days to, for Nabal, maybe it was in some sort of a, a mind frame that he could still think for him to try to make things right with God, maybe it was for other people to say goodbye, we have no idea why, but he lasted for 10 days, and then the Bible says, 
that he died. Now we do know that was a punishment by God. God's the one that struck him dead because of the life that he lived and the way that he chose. A very distinctive life of the foolish rich man, Nabal. But then we see somebody that completely goes to the other end of the spectrum, and that's the faithful handmaid, Abigail. And we'll, you'll see in that passage, she's in verse number three, verses 14 to 31, verses 36 and 37, and verses 39 to 42. She's in there quite a bit. Now, she was known for being discerning and beautiful. In fact, her name meant my father's joy, discerning and beautiful. That's a great qualities to have in a wife or anybody. Well, I guess guys don't like to be called beautiful, Uh, but good looking. But a discerning person, that's what I think we all want to have, to be able to have the ability to be able to see clearly in difficult situations. She was discerning and she was beautiful. She also was a mediator. When she got the news of what was going to happen, that David was coming down and David was going to wipe out her, her whole, all the men in her tribe, which she probably would have been spared, but would have become a slave. Instead, she goes, you know what, I'm going to go and I'm going to mediate this. She brings a gift to give to him, which sounds like a lot, but when you're looking at feeding 600 men plus women and children, what she brought wasn't much. It was more just a token offering, but it's a lot to get together in a short time. But she went immediately. What did she do? She took responsibility from the beginning. For the part she played, hey, I'm usually the negotiator. I didn't know about this. And she went and was mediating between David and what he was going to try to do to the people of her tribe. We see she was also a woman of, a woman of action. She didn't sit there and go, oh no, what am I going to do now? I don't know what's going to happen. Or there's nothing I can do now. I guess whatever happens, happens. No, she goes, wait a minute, here's danger. People are going to die as a result of this. i got to do something about it. I can't just sit back and allow this to happen. We also see, as I mentioned already, that she was a woman of humility. In her mediation, she was humble. She didn't go, hey, David, you are making the wrong decision. She did, but not in an outright forthcoming. Hey, David, you need to be protected and as I, she humbly came before him, I just want to remind you that if you do this, there's going to be blood on your hands unnecessarily, and God's got these great plans for you. And she was able in a humble way to present truth to David so that he could see the error, <coughs> excuse me, of his ways. She was also a peacemaker, doing whatever she could to try to draw peace in the situation. Even realizing that night her husband was drunk, that that wasn't the time to tell him what had happened. We find out that she was wise. She used a great deal of wisdom in deciding the things that she did in order to be able to help her tribe and to be able to show the right kind of, excuse me, dignity to David in his situation. And she was truthful. She didn't try to hide this from her husband. She didn't go, he's not going to miss this, and he probably wouldn't have. He was a rich man. He had lots and lots of stuff. But she chose to go and to tell her husband and and, and to be able to make sure truthful, hey, I need you to know this is what happened. She was a faithful handmaid. The last person we see in the story is the future king, David. Now, it's interesting to note here that David, when he found Saul in chapter number 24, and when he found Saul in chapter 26, in both those situations, he was urged to take rash action, and instead, he held back. But in chapter 25, 
when something much more insignificant happened, he didn't pray about it. He didn't seek counsel about it. He just reacted in his anger. Now, we'll have to say this. He was looking out for his people. He was looking out for his people. They need to be fed. They were on the run. This was a desert area. If you read the, the journeys of David, this was kind of a go-to spot. It was a good place to hide, make movements. He was familiar with it. It was near his homeland. So he, he had some allies there. And, and he knew they needed to be fed. And so he knew that one of the results of their deal, so to speak, with Nabal's herdsmen is that this would happen at some point. He'd be taken care of. And so that's why he made the request that he did. <clears throat> but we notice, too, that he reacted in his flesh. When the servants came back, as I said, he didn't pray. He didn't get advice. He just, what's the first thing it says he did there? He put his sword on. And he said to everybody else, get your swords on. We're going to go down there, and we got a battle to fight. So get ready. He reacted in his flesh. <clears throat> I think it's interesting to note there that we need to be very careful because out of some of our greatest moments of God using and working in us can oftentimes be led by some of our most miserable times of failure. That's why we can't be defined by our greatest moments or our worst moments, but by the life that we overall live. And that's why David was known as a man after God's own heart because overall you see that in his lifestyle and the choices that he makes. But in the midst of this situation here, he reacted. But we also see that when Abigail confronted him, that he accepted responsibility. <clears throat> he accepted responsibility. He didn't go, Abigail, get out of the way. Um, Abigail, or kill her, or take her into slavery. He listened to her, and he accepted responsibility. That's a great quality to have. It's hard, especially when he's got 400 guys behind him that are all now wired up to have this battle, wired up to wipe out this guy, wired up to take all the stuff that they want now. And David goes, no, you know what? I was wrong. And you'll notice that in David's life, <clears throat> excuse me, on more than one occasion when he's confronted. And then you'll see the second aspect that comes when he accepts responsibility, and that's that he repents of his sin. He repents of his sin. Whenever we're confronted about the things that we do in our life, whether God confronts us in the spirit of God, a brother or sister does, or we notice in our own self through the word of God, do we have that characteristic? But he took responsibility and he repented. Now, I'm not going to do this, even though moments before I said, I'm going to go down and by morning, everybody's going to be wiped out. And I think that brings us to the last point underneath this guy, is he left the vengeance to God. God's going to take care of this. I know what I could do, but God's going to take care of this. And by the way, that's one of the most difficult things to do when you're all wired up and you feel justified in what you're going to do is to allow God to have his vengeance. And we oftentimes, <clears throat> excuse me, even on this earth don't see that carried out the way we'd like to. David in this situation happened to see it pretty quickly. But that's not the normal way these things play themselves out. Three lives that all come together. You got this foolish rich man, Nabal. You got this faithful handmaid of Abigail. And you have this future king of David. And they come with such different personalities and their worlds collide in this one little story. 
tucked away in this kind of traveling uh, situation or scenario of David, and God draws us out of that to ask ourselves questions about what of those individuals, which ones would we ourselves say, hey, I can attest that I'm kind of acting this way, or I'm following after this person's path, or I'm tracking down the path of this individual. And I think that draws us to some challenges that we need to pull out of this passage. Because maybe the main reason God put this here is to remind us that our lives and our choices, they matter. They make a difference. I'm grateful for a God of mercy and grace. And we don't know anything other than what's in this story. We don't know if Nabal had a thousand chances or what happened there, but we are grateful that God gives us scenarios to look at our lives and our choices. So let me ask you a question. What's your reputation? If I were to go and ask individuals that live in your family, that work with you, that go to church with you, your kids, your spouses, parents, what's your reputation? What are you known for as a whole? Are you known for a person who loves God? Are you known as a person who kind of just is a punch your clock on Sunday type person? Are you known as somebody that tries to be understanding as a spouse or somebody that has a dogged determination to have it your way or the highway? Are you an individual that's known as being generous or stingy? Are you known as an individual who's loving or hateful? What do you, what are you known by? Now, if you really want to find out, go ahead and ask somebody that's close to you. <laughs> now, those are hard conversations, but they're good. There's been times that my wife and I have had those, and I've said, okay, what's an area or two in my life that you'd like to see me do different? You've got to be ready for those, by the way. I've had friends that I've gone to and said, hey, tell me some things that I need, <clears throat> excuse me, I need to change in my life. You've got to be ready for those things. I was at a pastor's conference, and I might have mentioned this, um, just the beginning of May, and I love the question one of the speakers said. He said with the guys that are closest to him, that he asked, he asked them to ask him this question. Ask me the one question you know I don't want to answer. Wow, that takes some guts. Ask me the one question that you know that I'm not going to want to answer. But that really shows the character and the reputation of who we are. Because we can think we're somebody, but if everybody else doesn't, then don't you want to be aware of it so that you can change by the grace and mercy of God? And by the way, all of us, all of us, all of us, all of us, did you catch that? All of us can change. Why? Because the Spirit of God. If you're a child of God today, the Spirit of God lives in you, and you have the Word of God, and you can change. But see, part of my problem is I want everybody else to change, and don't worry about enough me changing to be who God wants me to be, in my life so is your reputation and when you're confronted with it how do you respond to being the person that God wants you to be teachable being willing to accept responsibility and repent of sin now right along with that is how do you respond to conflict how do you respond to conflict now some of us in our day-to-day -day lives as long as everything's going okay we're pretty easy to get along with but woe to that individual that gets in my way when something goes wrong. I have a schedule to keep, and the schedule wasn't kept, and uh-oh, my car broke down, and God bless the person that has to bring the tow truck when that happens. And what's known by when those 
conflicts come in, in your marriage, in your parenting, and the other things that we get involved in, how do we respond to that conflict that we see in this story? These three individuals responded to conflict in different ways. How do we respond to conflict? <clears throat> the third thing I want you to consider is what character qualities are you choosing to embrace? Character qualities are you choosing to embrace? If we put your name up here and like Nabal, he was known as being harsh and not well behaved. Whereas we saw Abigail was known as being discerning and beautiful. What qualities would somebody say about you? By the way, that word beautiful is really kind of a cool word because it talked about being beautiful inside and out. Inside and out. What character qualities do you try to embrace? Do you want to be a, a person of integrity? You want to be a person of kindness, of care, of love. The fourth thing I want you to consider is, <clears throat> how do you respond to confrontation about your sin? When you are confronted, how do you respond? Now, maybe initially not good, but do you come back? Or do you storm off and you don't bring it up again? See, my family and our conflicts were great to do this. When I grew up in my home, we, we all these bags of past hurts. And whenever we got in a conflict and we got in a room there, we brought up our bags of past hurts and we hurled them into the midst of all the current hurts and there was hurts everywhere. And at the end of that conflict, nobody ever acknowledged fault or wrong. We all gathered our hurts back again, added a few more and put them in our bag and carried them on for the next conflict that happened. Maybe some of you have some similar situations. But we need to be, make sure that when we are confronted with sin in our life that we don't attack the other person but that we take responsibility. We ask God to forgive us, the person to forgive us, and then we ask God to help us to change and to become who he desires us to be. The last thing. <clears throat> What's one way that you'll choose to live out this passage today? You heard it read, and maybe even as you heard the words, you immediately thought to a characteristic or a situation, or man, I wouldn't have acted that way, or man, I could have seen how I could have acted that way. I doubt anybody here in their right mind would say, yep, I want to be Nabal. He's my guy. Can't wait to name my kid that. Don't know many Nabals here, by the way. I know a few Abigails, a few Davids. But see, we have to make sure that when we're faced with Scripture, folks, that then we decide to take it and really apply it to our lives. And grab one principle even today and say, Lord, help me to apply this in my life this week. Invite other people in that you share the growth you want to make and ask for their prayer support and guidance so that we can day by day, <clears throat> excuse me, be more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, these three worlds' lives collided. And this little story here, and there's a whole lot of sweet things to pull out of it and make applicable to where we live. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this word, um, for your word, Lord. Thank you for the power that's there. And Lord, as we come today, we come with all kinds of different backgrounds and situations. <clears throat> Some folks here are in <clears throat> deep pain. They're struggling, Lord, in their lives. Other people, Father, they're excited. They just came off of maybe some amazing vacation or, Lord, a time in your word. 
or a conversation that they had. But Lord, we come here today all with one thing in mind, and that we were created by you. And Lord, I pray first of all, if there's anyone here that doesn't have a relationship with you, they'd recognize the need for that. That the way for me really to be a godly person, and only way for me to be a godly person is to be your child. And Lord, I pray as we really contemplate these three different lives, that you'd help us to glean from them and apply the principles to our lives that we can be the children of God that you've called us to be. And we ask this in your precious name. Amen.